Welcome to Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. All right. So, good afternoon, Danny. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, you're looking uh, quite fresh after your trip to Australia, and uh, I'm really pleased to invite you to one of the earliest of the McKenna Academy Rainforest podcasts. So, it is an honor to be here. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. I'm going to introduce you to our audience. P.D. Newman specializes in the historical and current use of entheogenic compounds in mystical, magical, and initiatory contexts. He is the author of the groundbreaking work, Angels in Vermilion, the Philosopher's Stone from D to DMT, and the forthcoming titles, Theurgy in Theory and Practice, Mysteries of the Ascent to the Divine, and Tripping the Path of Souls, Native American Shamanism in the Mississippi Valley. Both a keen researcher and a dedicated practitioner, Newman has been immersed in the study and practice of alchemy, theurgy, and shamanism for over two decades. Welcome, Danny. I have a question for you already. What is theurgy? Okay, that's a good question. Um, the It's a word that first emerged in the second century, uh, second century after Christ, and it's it appears in something called the Chaldean Oracles, which is a, a received text um, that a father-son team called the Giuliani received. And the, the word itself means either it could be God work or the work of God or to work with the gods, but it's a combination of words that mean deity and work. And it essentially boils down to... Uh, a, a ritual it's a it's a death ritual funeral like ritual where the person going through it uh dies to the old self and ascends through the spheres and has a a, a confrontation with a deity and then comes back and brings with him similar to shamanism brings with with him boons of of healing and uh, uh, uh so so things. it's like it's like divinely received wisdom through some channel or another. I, mm -hmm. I, oh, very interesting. How did you get interested in all this? All of this or just the theurgy part? All of it. All of it started with psychedelics. Um, my brother and I, you know, we, we were a lot like I imagined you and, and Terrence were. We, we grew up in the deep south, though, where as long as the cows are fed corn mushrooms will grow on them so uh, yeah, yeah. mushrooms okay. so we spent since i was 11 years old we started spending most of our time throughout the late summer and fall uh, picking and drying and learning how to use those things and at proper dosages and that sort of thing that's great so that's it from the age of 14 you were you were into this and you were in a you were in a symbiotic relationship with these mushrooms. You Absolutely, you to it by about a decade. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I one of my uh, most cherished uh, memories as a young man. Uh, I was living in Berkeley, and I decided to take a a. Uh, I decided to go see Richard Schultes, see if I could get to work with him. 
and, but I didn't have any money. So at that time, you could buy a Greyhound ticket 60 days for $60. And that I could afford. So I bought one of those tickets. I left Berkeley. And the first place I went before I got to Massachusetts, I took a long time to get there, under 60 days, but a long time. And the uh, first place I went was to Hammond, Louisiana, where some friends of mine owned a leather shop. They were the only hippies in town, but they lived on the edge of, of, the, of the town in a pasture, and they had cows. And my, my purpose for going there was to go down and get some mushrooms. You know, I mean, I was going to get bags and bags of take them back to Berkeley and sell them. Well, that never worked. <laughs> it was the dry season. As it turned out, there were damn few mushrooms, but there was yeah. enough that I could regularly find them. And uh, I had a wonderful time. They were off in town all day at their, at their leather shop, but I just went out into the field and ate a few and communed with the cows. And I had a, yeah. a great great trips out there it was wonderful that's one of my favorite things to do in the whole world is 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 camp and trip in the field where they're picked there's a uh, there's a communion that takes place and it does involve the cows like you said you're you're Definitely. you're communing with this symbiote like you say symbiosis um i remember one time my, my wife and i she wasn't my wife then but we were camping in this field we like to pick in and and i just had this overwhelming kind of epiphany that that those cows that the mushrooms if they can only be here through the cows but the cows can only be here through the grain through the corn and of course you have to build a fence around them to get them to poop in one place long enough to produce yep. enough where the mycelium can grow so it's it really is a uh, something that demands an humans to do agriculture because uh, yeah. corn on its own doesn't produce that many grains each each kernel of corn used to be a grain of pollen so every kernel is a pollen uh, a speck of pollen and but when corn grows in the wild there's not nearly enough of it to produce right. anything like right. that so it it really is um at least in this area it's very much a product of of agriculture and of animal husbandry uh, it's, it really is a complex web that holds those mushrooms in front of us it, it's a true three-way symbiosis between mm -hmm. shrooms the cows and the people and probably that symbiosis something like that was been repeated potentially for millions of years this is i believe my it theory i can't see why that couldn't be, you know, knowing the paleogeology, the paleoclimatology of, of Africa in those times and the paleontology. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about what you know, and uh, I would like to uh, get on with that. Uh, we can talk about okay. stone date theory some other day. Uh, so do you want to share your screen and yeah, let me start your uh, presentation? Um, so I've titled this Ancient Egyptian Alchemy because Egypt is where alchemy emerged. We we have, of course, Indian alchemical traditions and uh, Chinese alchemical traditions, but they didn't call them alchemy. The processes and the philosophies are similar, but alchemy as such emerged out of Hellenistic Egypt. Uh, so 
and I'm and the subtitle from Acacia to Zosimos, the word alchemy, the first time it was bequeathed to us in writing was by this man Zosimos of Panopolis, who um is widely considered the first alchemist outside of the person who taught him, which is a woman named Maria Prophetissima or Maria the Prophetess. So uh, this is separated into several parts, um, and we're going to start with alchemia and alchemy, and this idea of a stone that now it's called the philosopher's stone. Um, he would he would call it the sage's stone. Uh, several different titles he'd give it, but they're all they're all cognates with this notion of a stone for wise men. So. Zosimos, he was a Gnostic hermitist, um, which means he was a Christian. And he he had this idea about the Egyptian priesthood that they weren't exactly what they said they were. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Um, but the area he lived in was a place called Akmin. And what he did as a the way he made his living was doing something called statue animation. He made the statues. He had this secret knowledge about how to tincture the statues certain colors, which was important because just like in Greek magic, in Egyptian magic, all of the deities have correspondences from every kingdom, from the animal kingdom, plant kingdom, mineral kingdom, and colors. So the means by which he believed you could get a deity to inhabit a statue, that's what he means by animated. Uh, filled with anima or soul. The means by which you do that are by employing that deity's correspondences. So colors were very important. And um, and that's really where we get the language tincturing from. The word he uses that we translate as tincturing right. is bafe. And bafe, it means to baptize, to plunge into something, and specifically to plunge into dye. And that language persists on up into uh, theosophy, the early Jacob Burma theosophy um, in the 15th, 16th century. Um, so he's a metallurgist, and he's creating statues that are in in soul. And again, he claimed to have learned alchemy, which alchemy is not the statue animation, but that's that was his job. Um, and he claimed to have learned this secret doctrine of alchemy from this other from a female a maria and i find this very fascinating that it because he takes on a student who turns out to be a female so in for example in, in freemasonry you know early on it was men only and it was these secrets were seen as passed from a man to another man well he's learned it from a woman and he's passing it to a woman and this seems to be central to the way these hermetists worked for instance uh, there's another hermetic ritual that appears in the greek magical papyri called the mithras liturgy which is a rite of apothenatissimos or immortalization and in it the person going through the ritual ascends to the gods just like we talked about with theurgy but it's a female that comes to this male to go through it so we're, we're talking about uh, a, a secret society of alchemists that that are are using this kind of polarity is how i see it um, to pass the wisdom on and it and it may even suggest 
a sexual aspect to it, sexual relationships. This is a picture of um, Zosimos's apparatus for distillation from his own manuscript. And I include this because I want it to be clear that Zosimos is a laboratory alchemist. We tend to now, when we discuss alchemy in the Western mystery traditions, it tends to be discussed in terms of a philosophical, spiritual, metaphysical system where they're using um, the language of metallurgy and things, uh, transmutations, they're using that language as a metaphorical trope. There are metaphors involved with Zosimos, but it is a laboratory system. He's making something. He was a hands-on alchemist. He was he was mucking around with plants. That's right, plants and 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 some minerals, but mainly plants. And we'll see. Even when he uses mineral language, he means plants. Mm -hmm. uh, and like I said, he has a student that he takes on named Theosabia, and Theosabia is. She's learning astrology from the Egyptian priesthood and taking these offerings to them. They offer them to the gods in her name and and then teach her. And Zosimos tells her that this astrology is actually what they use to enmesh the souls of men in matter. Um, it's the way that these fallen angels, the same fallen angels we read about in the Book of Sabinach and, and Genesis. He's a Christian, so he's he's exposed to this literature. And he believes that the gods to which these Egyptian priests are making these sacrifices are actually those fallen angels. And the the things that that they're teaching her, he says, is the mechanism by which they enmesh souls. So she says, Well, I, I don't agree because they're teaching me what she calls propitious alchemy, which we would call um, classic elections, you know, trying to figure out the best time to do certain actions. And he says it doesn't matter if you're doing propitious alchemy. If you use alchemy at all, it only enmeshes you further in fate. But he says, but I have this way of separating the soul from matter, doing right the opposite. And he says, that's what I call alchemia. Okay. And he offers to teach it to her. And she's interested, so she she says, "Okay, I'll, I'll I'll take you up on that offer. What do you have to say? What do you have to teach me?" And he starts teaching her about, um, excuse me, he starts teaching her about uh, cinnabar. Now, if you're familiar at all with Chinese alchemy, they have two systems: nadon and weidon. One is internal alchemy; the other is laboratory alchemy, like what we're discussing here. And they they center that work around cinnabar and cinnabar is a mineral that is composed of sulfur and mercury it's what the pyramids were made out of in mexico teotihuacan uh, was made out of these cinnabar slabs and they would put it through a, a smelting process and extract the mercury out of it um, in mexico and that's where they found that mercury under the pyramid in like a river so it's 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 kind of a, a worldwide thing, this preoccupation with cinnabar. We don't know where Zosimos encountered it, but he apparently did. I believe he probably encountered um, some Chinese alchemy because uh, it goes way back. But what they do with this cinnabar is they teach a cosmology with it. What they're trying to teach is how you go from one god to all of the many things we see around us. How do you go from the one to the many? 
So they use cinnabar as a metaphor to teach that. They say that the cinnabar is the one, and from it we create two. Well, Zosimos, he's not teaching a cosmology with it. He's literally telling her. So we take the cinnabar, and we extract mercury from it. And she writes him back, and she says, Look, I, have, I don't understand what metallurgy and this mineral talk has to do with freeing my soul from matter. What, what does this have to do with me? And so he says, Well... I'll tell you what it has to do with you. He says, in fact, I'll draw you a picture. And he writes her a book called Mushaf Asuvar that was preserved by the, the Arabs. Um, Arabic communities preserved it and got it eventually into European alchemy, where it influenced virtually every alchemical text uh, that was produced during the Middle Ages. So what he tells her in this book in addition to these pictures, which this picture we're looking at is a picture from the book of Zosimos with the sun over him and Theosabia with the moon. I, that's my interpretation of what we're seeing. Um, but he's telling her, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this down and give you the secret to this. And what he tells her is, he says, well, this is the part that, you know, that she's confused by. But he, he says, if you dissolve the body together with the mercury, by the acacia and continue to cook the whole then the body will die the body he means the cinnabar that is what the sages spoke of when they said it is white in outer appearance and red in essence and i want you to keep that in your mind while we're going through this process of discussing this because it appears over and over this idea that it's white and red somehow particularly white on the outside and red on the inside he said, he says, but they said mercury from cinnabar in order to disguise it from those who wanted to enter this work. The sages described their work with any one of the crafts similar to it in order to cover it. Therefore, we have also named it lead from copper. So when he says lead from copper is the same as mercury from cinnabar, he's telling her that I, when I choose these red minerals and these red metals like copper and cinnabar, what I really mean is acacia. And from it, we're getting this specific substance. And that is absolutely mind, mind boggling to me that this has never really been teased out before, because this is, this suggests that from the very beginning of alchemy, as such, it's there's uh, are entheogens present. It's an entheogenic um, endeavor. So this is what cinnabar looks like. Um, and to the right is vermilion, the red powder that's prepared from it. So if you produce, if you uh, uh, smelt this cinnabar, one of the the byproducts you can get is vermilion pigment. Um, and he he uses this specifically because. It resembles what he's talking about. Just like he said to, to his student, we're, we're concealing it under a language of a, 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 an art whose processes are similar to our craft. And he sees this as looking like his, his, his uh, acacia powder. And there's a good reason why. So this is an image on the right. We're seeing acacia root bark. And on the left, we're seeing the acacia root bark powdered. Um, which is how you would need it in order to put it through this process to extract this stone from it. But you can see there's a remarkable resemblance here. 
and and it's the the redness. Not all acacias have this redness, but the the acacias with which he was working did. And the the ones we're usually familiar with, those who do kind of work with uh, acacia texts and produce DMT organically. This is what we usually see from, especially from uh, mimosa hostilis. It has the same kind of a redness to it. And mimosa and acacia are from the same family. They're both mimosoids, we would call them. Uh, in fact, uh, mimosa hostilis used to be classified acacia tenuiflora. So it was, it was once an acacia. The same is true of the anadenantheras that produce yopo and and the Caribbean and South America. Um, they were once classified as acacia nyopo. So they're all re very related plants, and most of us, if we're, we were if we're botanists, we wouldn't be able to tell them apart anyway. They're so similar. Now this is a picture from. Mushafa Suvar, and you see he's pointing with his left hand at the roots of this tree, as if to indicate this is what we want. The, the good stuff is in the roots. And the leaves are colored in the classic colors of the alchemical work, black, white, and red, which indicate how you produce this. The black signifies the dark roots in the earth, um, in the black earth, which is actually um, where alchemy comes from, from kemet, kemia, which means black, black earth. So the black phase indicates where we find the prima materia, the first matter. The white represents purification. It represents um, catharsis, stripping everything away except for the stone. And then the red represents the final phase, which actually signifies the more an effect than than a stage itself. It, it represents carnal union with this, bringing it into the body. And on the right, you can see that this is a classic um, bipinnate compound leaf structure that we see with uh, virtually every acacia and mimosa. Now, I just spent some time in Australia where I was exposed to a number of acacias that do not have that kind of leaf structure. Um, but the ones, again, that Zosimos was working with, and we'll discuss some of those in, in a moment, they did have that same uh, leaf structure. Now, they also have these thorns all over them, which is actually what acacia means. When Dioscorides named the acacia, he named it after its most defining characteristic, which are these thorns. And you can see they vary um, significantly in appearance, but in, but in every case, they are gnarly. The top one to the left is what we have here in Mississippi, uh, Gladitsia triacanthos. It used to be classified as acacia americana. Um, but it's a fascinating one that shows up in a number of different botanical assemblages from burial mound sites. So there might even be history of this here in, in the States. But we seem to find, we're finding it all over the place the more we investigate. Now, of course, Zosimos did not invent acacia. He didn't pull that out of a vacuum. He was part of a long Egyptian tradition that saw acacia as the arbor vitae, the tree of life. And it was seen this way because it's it's wrapped up with the myth of one of the most famous Egyptian gods, Osiris. And this is an image of Osiris here in the underworld, in the duat, um, which is where, where he travels when the sun is, you, it can't be seen, the underworld. 
Um, and every Egyptian, after, in the beginning, it was only the pharaohs, but later on, it was believed that every Egyptian had to go through this, this trial and this face-to-face confrontation with Osiris in the underworld. Now, Osiris, he is, a lot of people, you'll see them say he's a sun god. He's not a sun god. He's a vegetation and fertility god and a god of the dead. Um, the, the association with the sun comes from the association of solar timings with agricultural timings. So you can't separate him from, from the sun, but he's not the sun. And he, he is a member of a trio of gods where he was the firstborn and the, the next two are Isis and Set or um, Apep, Apophis, Typhon, several different names he's called by. And because he's the oldest, he, he gets the, he's supposed to marry his sister, Isis, who's one of these three gods. Well, Isis chooses, I mean, excuse me, Set was born first, Set and then Osiris. So Set is supposed to marry isis but isis chooses osiris and that causes this um this real anger to develop and set that pans out in what he so they're having a wedding and he throws a party for them while they're having this wedding um and he tells him look i've made this box for you this special box and it's the exact dimensions of your body and Osiris, he had been drinking in the story, and he says, that's impossible. I'm a god. You can't mimic my dimensions in a box. And he says, okay, we'll climb inside of it, and I'll prove it. And he climbs inside of it, and Set nails the, the top on, and you, we find out it's a coffin that he's nailed him in. And he takes this coffin and throws it into the Nile. And eventually, it washes up, just like Moses' basket washed up on, on the bank of the Nile, wrapped up in the roots of an acacia tree and the box itself was said to be made out of acacia also but in his his writings he just notes that it was a red wood um but it's acacia uh now set one of his minions finds out about this coffin being wrapped up in this tree and he comes and tells him Osiris is no longer in the Nile he's out now he's still in the box but eventually he'll get out of that box and you're gonna have to deal with him so Set says, well, I'll nip that in the bud. And he goes down, chops the tree down, cuts it up into planks, and throws all of those planks into the Nile. Another version of, this, of the story, he scatters them all over Upper and Lower Egypt. But it's the one where he throws them in the Nile that concerns us. So eventually Isis is able to recover all of his parts and reassemble him, but she doesn't find his phallus. She doesn't find the generative part of him. It's lost in the water. Mm-hmm. Keep that that image in your head. It's lost. It was said to have been eaten by a, a fish. And uh, this fish shows up in later alchemical traditions um, and European alchemy. So she reassembles him and constructs a new phallus out of acacia it's this acacia shows up over and over she carves him a magical phallus out of acacia and then after he is resurrected and brought back to life she consorts with him 
and she becomes pregnant with Horus. And Horus is who eventually avenges Osiris against his murder by Set, his uncle. And this is really probably the, the most famous Egyptian myth. But there were other gods worshipped before Osiris, like Apep the bull. Uh, no, excuse me, Apis the Apis bull. It's a golden bull. But by the time Osiris became the chief deity of Memphis, he subsumed these other gods. And this myth, other myths became combined with it. This is a good example. So prior to the Osiris myth that we just discussed, there was another myth about uh, a cat goddess. Some say it's Sekhmet, others say it's Bastet. But she chases Apep, this same serpent, the serpent of darkness, into an acacia tree where he's killed. And that blood runs down the tree and creates a medicine. This same story shows up in Greek myth where uh, it's Dionysus who becomes a mongoose uh, and chases the snake. And later, Osiris becomes the mongoose instead of a cat and chases the same so we'll fast forward to the 8th or ninth century when another one of these texts that were preserved by these hermetic Arabic communities um, reaches Europe called the Turba Philosophorum. And this text is really fascinating to me because it's an argument among a group of philosophers about what the Philosopher's Stone is and how it's made. These philosophers that show up are Plato, Socrates, Parmenides, Empedocles, these pre-Socratic and, and Platonic philosophers. And then there's Moses. And Moses, you remember, you got to remember, he was raised an Egyptian. And there arose a tradition in alchemy that said Mo Moses was an alchemist. And this primarily comes from the, the episode when he makes the children of Israel drink the golden calf that was he grinds it to a powder mixes it with water and makes them drink it so this drinking of gold um was very very meaningful to the alchemists and here we have moses cast as an alchemist and this is where we find our our next mention of the the identification of the prima materia moses stops them all he says the envious have named lead from copper. Remember, Zosimo said that copper being a red metal, so that's our acacia. The envious have named the lead from copper the instruments of formation in order to mislead posterity by deception. Again, just like what Zosimo said, I am making it known to them that their instruments of formation are formed from our powder. But of them, no powder is more fit for our work and better for our composition than the powder of acacia, out of which arise suitable instruments of formation. Now, by instruments of formation, he means the thing by which we do the stuff, the, the philosopher's stone. He's producing it from acacia. So we see this, this tradition has continued on up until we're at 8th we're or ninth century now. Another person in Europe who names acacia by name um, is an alchemist named Heinrich Kuhnrath. And Kuhnrath 
we'll learn later was a student of Edward Kelly, which is very significant for this, this study. But Coonrath, he says, the white powder is acacia gum. Thus, the red gum is the resin of the wise, a synonym for the transforming substance. So remember the red and the white, they're from the same thing. It's white in outer appearance. It's red on the inside. Acacia gum is a, a sap, a gum that comes from acacia trees. It's used as a foodstuff. It's used in incense blends. It's used in all kinds of places to this day. Uh, but he's making it clear to you that, yes, it's from acacia, but it's not the white stuff. It's the red stuff that you want. Now, he didn't just pull this out of anywhere. He he gets this from Zosimos's teacher, Maria Prophetissima. While she didn't leave any writings, Zosimos quotes her as saying, From the white plant that grows upon the mountain, take white gum and red gum, and join them in true marriage, gum with gum. Now, of course, the red gum, like Kunrath said, is the transformative substance. It's the psychedelic part of it. The white part being just a foodstuff. It's a binding agent. And that's where this really comes in, is that it binds it. It makes it into a solid. Prior to this, Zosimos discusses this, prior to him, this was only used in an elixir form, in a liquid. But he says, I'm the first to figure out how to turn this into a stone. And I think that's important at this time because glassware is virtually non-existent how outside of a sheep's bladder how do you keep a small amount of liquid and a sheep's bladder is remarkably large for the amount of liquid we're talking about how do you keep it from drying up or spilling or draining you make it a solid and i think that's what we're seeing here now when she says the white plant that grows upon the mountain the mountains in that region produce acacia albida the white acacia it's um, it's been reclassified as Fiderbia albida, but it's still acacia albida. This is what we suspect she was talking about. In bloom, the white blossoms cover the the entire tree and make it almost look like it's snow covered. It looks like completely white. So this brings us to the second part of this this talk. Um, we're going to talk about probably the most famous episode from from European alchemy, and it's with a man named Dr. John D, who was uh, an astrologer. He was the advisor for Queen Elizabeth I. He was a mathematician, uh, anything you can imagine that was a quote-unquote science of the day. He was knee-deep in it and a master at it. But one thing he wasn't a master at was talking to angels. He, he, he wanted to be able to communicate with angels, mainly because he believed that angels were in the space in the, in the sky. And wherever they were, that spot all the way down to where it touched the earth, they ruled that. So the angel that's over Germany rules Germany, and the one that's over England rules England. And his, what his thinking was, if I could just talk to the, the angel that rules Germany, then I could spy on Germany and I could control Germany. And, and this would make me more 
valuable to the queen. So that's what he was trying to do, but he couldn't do it. After, after all this trial and error, he eventually started taking on scryers, and Queen Elizabeth would send them to him, but he was never happy with them. None of them were ever able to do this to the degree that he wanted them to, until a man showed up named Sir Edward Kelly. He wasn't a sir yet, but Edward Kelly. Kelly was already kind of a uh, a charlatan figure. He he was seen that way. He was a scoundrel. He he had had his ears cropped for the crime of coining. Um, coining is passing off uh, adulterated metals as silver or gold, something that was already associated with alchemists, and it's actually the reason that the Catholic Church banned alchemy was because of this coining problem. But he is immediately successful in this. And what they're using, first they used an Aztec obsidian mirror. That's what we see on the left. I find it very fascinating that what Dee was using was this, a mirror similar to those that the Aztecs were likely taking mushrooms and staring into for visionary purposes. He had gotten his hands on one. Well, after Kelly comes along, similar to the way there would be manifestations of jewels and necklaces uh, in New York in the burned-over district during the boom of spiritualism, an angel showed up and brought them another crystal and told them to use this one instead. And with this, they started reading, re receiving what we know as Enochian magic, this very complex system of magical ritual designed to communicate with angels. And through these transmissions, he eventually constructed this at their, the angel's um, direction. This table had to be built this way with this uh, this sigil-like thing on, on the top. There, the, the wax disc we're seeing is called the Sigillum de Amet, and there's also one of the, each of those placed underneath the pegs of this table. And on top of it is the crystal that he is using to see the angels that they're making contact with. And I, I'm, I'm not sure who the artist is, but I had to include this image because I, I just love it. The gesture in the corner, the the female ghost to the left, the angel in the the crystal. It, it demonstrates quite well the visionary uh, aspect of this tale. Now, he finally confesses to D. He says. I did you I came to you because I need your help. I, I just used you needing a scryer as a way to get to you. And he says, I actually I have this manuscript in my possession called the Book of Dunstan. And in it, it's it, it gives directions on how to produce this red powder. And he says this red powder is is essential. I have to have this. It's he doesn't say this to D, but it's clear he needs it to do these seances, what they call these angelic actions. This is his visionary substance. And he goes to great lengths to try and get Dee to translate this thing. And when he won't, he finally says, well, an angel told me to come talk to you and tell you to translate it. And then it tells us where treasure is buried. Dee liked that. If you read in his diaries, he was constantly asking these angels about treasure, buried treasure. So he got, he got Dee's attention again. And he tells him it's from this this Dunstan figure. Well, St. Dunstan, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And allegedly, 
His grave was rifled, and in it they found two ceramic orbs, one red and one white. And the story, the person who opens this grave, he throws the white ball, and it breaks on the ground to reveal a white powder that is immediately absorbed in the ground that's gone. Probably acacia gum. And the red orb, he doesn't break it, but he thinks, excuse me, he thinks, I can probably take this into town and sell it which he does to an innkeeper. And it's this innkeeper who put it in the possession of Kelly. Well, Dunstan, the person it's about, is an interesting figure in his own right. He he was a metallurgist. He moved into the ruins of Glastonbury, set up a tiny little lab, and he would sit in there and make do alchemy and metallurgy and pray. And he was subject to visions of the devil. I think that's significant that he's having visions. Uh, in one famous story, he grabs the devil by the nose with his blacksmith tongs and leads him out, out and shows the people outside as uh, some of his his followers, his students. He says, "Look, see, the devil is real, and and this is uh, this is what he looks like." But he he didn't leave us any writings. But there are writings attributed to him. Whether they actually go back to him, we can't prove that. We don't know that. But one of the writings attributed to him is from a book called De Occulta Philosophia, The Occult Philosophy. And in it, he's, he's quoted as having said, The angelic stone provides exceptional temporal and geographic vision and an ability to understand the language of animals. Also, he shall be endued with divine gifts of foreknowledge by, of things by dreams and revelations. It is the food of angels. Now, this language, this angelic stone, food of angels language, we'll see it show back up in Ashmole and the Royal Society. So they were definitely reading this also. But again, this uh, we said we said earlier, Coonrath, the figure who who gave us the acacia gum reference, that he was a student of Kelly. Well, whenever Kelly, he, Kelly was eventually arrested for this claiming to be able to transmute base metals into gold, which he couldn't do, um, obviously, because it's a metaphor. So he was arrested and his place was taken by Kunrath. Rudolf II hired Kunrath as his court projector. Kunrath is the, is the one who I said gives us this this identification of the white powder as acacia, but he was Kelly's student. He sought Kelly out uh, to teach him. So just as a reminder, the quote again, the white powder is acacia gum, thus the red gum is the resin of the wise. He gets this from Kelly. And this brings us to part three of this talk, with which concerns Elias Ashmole and the Royal Society. And we're going to see more of this language appear regarding this acacia and this substance. Ashmole, he was is from Litchfield. He was an antiquary. He's the one who gave us um, public museums. He created the very first public museum. But he eventually got into alchemy. And he learned alchemy from a man named William Backhouse. Backhouse learned alchemy from his father, Samuel Backhouse, who was a student of Kelly. Ashmole was 
pretty much obsessed with John D and Kelly's work. And he eventually became D's archivist and inherited all of his papers. He also inherited a manuscript that before it was realized what it was, had become kindling for the hearth of another fellow who sold him the papers. I think his name was John Hussey, but his maid didn't realize what they were. And she burned seven pages before he, he realized what it was. And, um, so those seven pages are lost to us to this day, but Ashmole acquires those manuscripts and he tries to, to decode them and work with them. In the meantime, he starts publishing on alchemy. He, his first book on alchemy he publishes is Fascaculus Chemicus, which is a collection of alchemical poems in the English language. His second alchemical text, one of the most famous alchemical texts ever to be produced, is Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum. And in this, he includes this prologue. He says, the angelic stone, no, that's the language we just saw from Dunstan. The angelic stone affords apparition of angels, meaning visions, and gives the power of conversing with them by dreams and revelations. Nor dare any evil spirit approach the place where it lodges. So again, dreams and revelations, angelical stone. It, it, we're seeing a continuation of a tradition that began in ancient Egypt. Now, this is a picture of what's believed to be Kelly's lab. This was discovered behind a, a, a secret wall, and it's now part of a museum in Prague. But this is just like with Zosimos. He's the, the equipment, the apparatus looks almost identical, and it's clear that they're doing something in the lab. It's not just a metaphysical, metaphorical practice. And you'll, you'll read tons of alchemy books that claim that that's the case, that it's just metaphor. But I, I, I've written these folks, and I'm, I'm encouraging them to test the the residues in these bottles because we don't know what what any of this stuff is. But if any of it tested positive for uh, acacia, we would have we we would know a lot more than we do um, besides just references and literature. But he also includes a poem from Kelly. In this book and this poem has a line in it that i find very revealing he says and you that fine philosophers would be and night and day in jabir's kitchen broil wasting the chips of ancient hermes tree weaning to turn them to a precious oil the more you work the more you lose and spoil to you i say how learned so ever you be, go burn your books and come and learn from me. <laughs> Pretty arrogant, but probably uh, he probably is right. Uh, he 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 probably was one of the most learned alchemists of his of his day. Now, while Ashmole is working with these papers, he realizes it must be the red powder. That's why I can't get it to work. He couldn't see the angels either, just like D. So he brings the problem to his friend, Robert Boyle. Robert Boyle is known as the first chemist. Um, he was the, an elected president of the Royal Society in 1680, uh, a position which he declined. But he was dumbfounded to learn that Boyle was already looking for this red powder. 
he had learned about it from an alchemist named Wenzel Sailor, who claimed to have found it in a pillar in a monastery. Well, a, me a fellow member of the Royal Society, a man named uh, George Ash, writes to him, writes Boyle, the letter survives, and he says, this red powder that you're preoccupied with, it didn't come, Wenzel Sailor didn't get it in a monastery. He got it from Edward Kelly when he was in Prague. So both of these men realize they're looking for the same substance independently of one another. And Boyle, being the scientific mind that he was, he immediately realized, well, if it causes visions and it's a physical substance, then it must be a drug. We're looking for a drug. And he even wrote a paper about it, a paper called Dialogue on the Converse of Angels Aided by the Philosopher's Stone. And in it, he says this, it seems incredible that a little powder that is as corporal as powder of brick should be able to attract incorporeal and intelligent beings that have neither need nor use of gold, and to converse with those that have made themselves possessors of a few ounces of transmuting powder. For what affinity can there be betwixt the inanimate elixir and a rational and immortal spirit that these angels should delight to hover about it so he he's he doesn't understand why why angels would be concerned at all with a physical substance much less why would it evoke their presence but like i said he's a smart man and he knew this if it's a physical substance and it must be a drug and at this point he releases a famous document it's all it was put on display by the royal society in 2010 it's called Boyle's to-do list or Boyle's wish list. And in it, he lists all of these items that he needs to acquire for the Royal Society to pursue this endeavor. In it, he says, we need potent drugs to alter or exalt imagination, to procure innocent sleep and harmless dreams, stimulating drugs, drugs that cause pleasing dreams as exemplified by the Egyptian electuary. Now, I cut electuary off there, but we'll see it in a second. But Egyptian electuaries, um, Chris Bennett, the cannabis uh, historian, has proposed that these that Egyptian electuaries refers to Dawamesk and Majun, these very sweet confections made with hashish in ancient Egypt. They're looking for this. Now, they're also looking for the fungus mentioned by the French author. This one is obscure. But again, Bennett suggests, and I think he's right, that the French author is Rabelais, uh, an alchemist who talks about um, manna in what seems very much like an entheogenic context, and he contrasts it with another fungus he calls the good agaric. Now remember, fly agaric is... Amanita muscaria is a hallucinogenic mushroom that's been known since, uh, at least since the publication of Mordecai's book, The Seven Sisters of Sleep. But this predates that. But it's a widely known hallucinogen. It's been proposed to be the solution to a number of different um, uh, entheogenic problems. Uh, Soma, for example, it was Wasson's famous solution for Soma. He says, drugs that cause great strength exemplified by frantic, epileptic, and hysterical persons. So he, he was 
literally looking for for hashish. He wants magic mushrooms, and he doesn't realize it, but he he needs acacia. They eventually find acacia, but before they do, they go through different drugs. One of the drugs they they experimented with was hashish. Uh, Robert Hooke, who was the curator of experiments at the Royal Society, and he was Isaac Newton's like arch nemesis. They hated one another. He gave two different lectures to the Royal Society on the physiological and psychological effects of hashish. In one of those, he says, "It is it is a certain plant called ganja. The dose of it is as about as much as may fill a common tobacco pipe." the leaves and seeds being dried first and pretty finely powdered. It taketh away the memory and understanding, so that the patient understands not, nor remembereth anything that he seeth, heareth, or doth in that ecstasy. After a little time he falls asleep, and sleepeth very soundly and quietly, and when he wakes he finds himself mightily refreshed and exceedingly hungry. Now, my friend David Harrison um, in his book, he discusses this and makes the comment that uh, what we're seeing here is the first case of first recorded case of the munchies. <laughs> now, where did they get acacia? Because that's the that's the 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 Ariadne thread that we're chasing here in their possession, and we know this was in their possession because Boyle had two major inspirations for the creation of the Royal Society. One of them was uh, the Invisible College, a, a, a proto-Rosicrucian style secret society of philosophers. And the other is what's called the Hartlib Circle, a group of alchemists that surrounded this man named Samuel Hartlib. And Hartlib, he left a number of correspondences behind with a number of different people. In one of them, one of the letters, we read this. For the sage's stone is made from the sage's acacia, which is first prepared by means of the common distilled acacia, the spirit of wine and other waters, and it must be reduced to its waxy form. Observe this in memory of me. That's almost like in the Last Supper, this do in remembrance of me. I think he's trying to be cryptic. That if pure distilled vinegar be immersed in the destroyed Saturn and preserved by the heat of St. Mary, probably referring to um, Maria Prophetissima, it loses its acridity and becomes sweet like sugar, and you will find transparent stones corresponding to crystals. So now we've gotten past solidifying it with gum. We're we've chemist proto chemistry has evolved to such a degree that they're able to get crystals, stones produced from this. And this is what we're familiar with today through modern DMT techs, which we'll find is almost step for step the way they were doing this. Now this is how acacia gets into freemasonry for the, those who don't know in the third degree of freemasonry the master mason degree the the candidate for initiation is symbolically murdered and raised but when he's murdered a sprig of acacia is placed at the head of his grave and 
in one version of the ritual, the rite of strict observance, they they pull the acacia out and he says, it has no roots, it must signify something. It doesn't say that it's an acacia, it must signify something. He says the fact that it's lacking roots is significant, it's a symbol. And so this man, John Theophilus de Sagulier, he was research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton at this at, in the Royal Society. He becomes the third Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge in London. Now, prior to that, Acacia was mentioned nowhere in Freemasonry. Instead, it talked about Cassia. Now, Cassia, it it, it shows up in um, in the Bible, referring to uh, funeral rites. It was used in Egypt for mummification, and it was mainly uh, a preservative, and it and it kept the body from stinking largely but they would use cassia in these funerary preparations mortuary preparations so the original reference to cassia was more in reference to the fact that the third degree is about death than anything else but by the time he becomes grand master which he would have had to have been to make this change because after that in, in literally every monitor every expose Every version of the rituals published throughout Europe adopted acacia and no longer said cassia. It was like overnight. Before I found out he was involved, I, I couldn't just couldn't get how how you could get everybody in Europe to just change like that. But uh, it takes a grand master. Now, after he made that change, it was so well received. Everyone thought it was such an amazing innovation, putting this acacia in masonry, that they had a parade. And in this parade, the masons paraded around their what's called tracing boards. Tracing boards are what are used as like a memory palace, a mnemonic for the worshipful master, the man who's initiating the candidate, a mnemonic for him to uh, recall points of these of the lectures, uh, things that are that must be said in the creation of a master mason. Well, what we're seeing here to the left in this board they're carrying is the new tracing board for the Master Mason degree, a coffin with a sprig of acacia at the top, which we can barely see, but this is the first time we see that tracing board. Now we see them all over the place. Um, here are four different versions uh, from different places all over the world in different times, but we can see in each one, uh, it's a coffin or a grave with the sprig of acacia at the top. Uh, now, this one to the right, I, I didn't have enough room to fit it. There's an acacia at the top and to the side. But that's that's this is De Sagulier's doing. That's This happened because of him, because the Royal Society was looking for psychedelics, mainly because they wanted to make these magic work. They needed this red powder. It's almost just mind-blowing to me. Now, that... It's, it would be easy to say all of this were conjecture um, if it weren't for the writings left by a man named Alessandro di Cagliostro. He called himself Count Cagliostro. He wasn't a count, but he was uh, an Italian mystic and healer and, a, and an alchemist. And he tells us blatantly what they're doing with this acacia. <laughs> He's also just like Edward Kelly is seen as like a, a scoundrel. And to this day, his name has been just smeared through the mud. Anything you read about Cagliostro is a warning about how terrible he is. 
And he, he claimed to have gotten the knowledge of what he calls Egyptian Freemasonry from a, a, a book on Egyptian Freemasonry that he bought from a London bookseller. I think his name was George Costan. We don't know what that book was, but it was probably this book, the Krata Rapoa, written by Friedrich von Koppen. Now, Cagliostro wasn't the first Mason to step forward and say, I represent this Egyptian form of Masonry. Prior to that, von Koppen said the same thing for an organization he called Afrikanisch Bauherren, meaning the African builders or the African architects. And in, in this book, Kratirapoa, he records those rituals. This was later published by Manley P. Hall as, as Egyptian Freemasonry. <laughs> but so von Koppen, in it, in the seventh and final degree of this of his right, the candidate is made to drink this elixir called oimelas. We don't. He doesn't give a recipe for the elixir, um, but based on the etymology. Uh, Hecathorn interprets it as honey and wine, o oi for oinos and melas for honey. So sweet wine. We're going to see that again, the same kind of idea. So remember Zosimos learned from Maria and Zosimos taught Theosabia. One thing Cagliostro insisted on was initiating women into his system of Freemasonry. Prior to that, only men were initiated but he said his his system women are absolutely and must be initiated with the caveat that they were initiated by different people the women were initiated by a woman who represented queen sheba the men were initiated by a man who represented just like in masonry one of the grand masters of freemasonry king solomon but he was a uh, insistent that women had to be involved now he He's got a, a, a an Egyptian order, his Masonic order. He says, I need some tracing boards, just like they have in regular Masonry. We're going to need tracing boards. And he has a, a one of his initiates is a man named Philip Lutherborg, who's a pretty famous painter. He, he was known for his paintings of ocean scenes, of boats. Um, but he said, I'll do it. I'll, I'll paint you something. And the first thing he painted him were these three images. These aren't the tracing boards, but they're plans for it. And that they were eventually, as I understand it, used as tracing boards. But in the beginning, he's showing them and saying, this is what I think I can do. If you like them, let me know. He loved them. And we'll see a lot of these motifs repeat, but he changes it around. And this is his first degree tracing board. And in the first degree, the candidate is met by Father Time. And Father Time forces the candidate into this little cave underneath. You can see there's a pyramid above it. But it represents a subterranean cavern under the pyramid. Once he gets in there, he sees that it's what we still, to this day in Masonry, call a chamber of reflection. And it's a, it's a cave that is uh, furnished with things like this. Um, there's usually human remains, either an entire skeleton, a skull and crossbones, or just a skull. Um, an hourglass is a symbol of time. There's a candle as a symbol of illumination. All these things uh, tend to be present, as well as a quill and uh, a piece of vellum on which you were to write your last will and testament. So they go in, in they experience this chamber of reflection. 
And when they come out, they're given a drink to drink. They're, they are standing in front of the master's altar, and on it is a goblet full of this red liquid. And this is what he says. The acacia is the primal matter. And when the rough ashlar or mercurial part has been purified, it becomes cubical. Now here he's borrowing language from masonry. The ashlar, rough ashlar, is the candidate who is new to masonry. He's rough around the edges, literally. But through this ritual work, he becomes a perfect ashlar, this perfect cube. He's borrowing that language and combining it with this language about a stone we already had from alchemy. He says, it is thus that you may bring about the marriage of the sun and moon and that you shall obtain the perfect projection. Remember the sun and moon over Zosimos and Theosabia's head. Then he says something very interesting. Quantum sufficit et quantum appetite. This phrase comes from pharm ancient, pharm not ancient, but old, old pharmacies, um, uh, apothecaries. When when they would distribute to you a drug that was safe to take as much as needed, it literally means take as needed. So quantum sufficit et quantum appetite, they've borrowed this from, from pharmacognosy, from uh, uh, apothecaries, and he's putting it in here. So th this lets us know right off the bat, he's talking about a drug. Once they've passed this, they go through a fumigation. And he fumigates, fills the the lodge up with this smoke from this uh, thurible, and he tells him that he's 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 fumigating him with innocence. Now th this is from a false etymology. Remember, we said acacia means thorned, but in Freemasonry they didn't know this, and they gave it a uh, uh, another definition based on its a false etymology. Ah. Kakios or a kakios, not evil, not bad or innocent. So he's literally saying, I'm fumigating you with acacia, but he gives it in this false etymology. And it's out of this fumigation that the candidate first begins to see visions. And it's represented here by this Medusa like woman holding a snakes and a torch, like Hecate sort of. Um, and here's an image from an Egyptian lodge, uh, which this is from a Memphis Mizraim lodge, which purports to be the continuation of Cagliostro's Egyptian masonry. But we can see the like massive amounts of fumigation going on, and even what looks like an alchemy lab here to the left. And in a lot of the old lodges in Europe, there were alchemy labs present in the lodge. And after that, he makes him drink this liquor this liquid and in in the french rite it's called the bitter cup um and the scottish rite is called the cup of death they no longer drink in acacia of course it's just wine but back then they were and this is what uh cagliostro says the candidate shall drink the red liqueur placed upon the master's altar thereby raising his spirit in order to understand the following speech which the worshipful master shall address to him at the same time now keep in mind this is in the 18th century the language that cagliostro has access to uh, 
but he's basically saying this is going to expand your consciousness, raise your spirit in order to understand. I think that's about as close as we could come to actually saying this is going to expand your consciousness that we could get at this date. Now, he, here is the next tracing board he shows, which shows us the candidate with this knife murdering Hiram, uh, murdering Hermes. Hermes and Hiram are cognates. The Hiram in the Bible uh, is spelled uh, Hey Resh Mam. Those same three letters, if we just change the way we pr pronounce the vowels, becomes Herm, uh, a short version of uh, Hermes, a shortened Hermes. Herms were um, Hermes-like statues that were placed to mark boundary lines, uh, mark properties in ancient Greece. So he's murdering Hiram in the form of Hermes. He says this to him, My child, you are receiving the primal matter. Learn that the great God created before man this primal matter, and that he then created man to possess it and be immortal. Man abused it and lost it. But it still exists in the hands of the elect of God, and from a single grain of this precious matter becomes a projection into infinity. Now, single grain is another giveaway that this is a drug he's talking about. A grain is a unit of measurement used for distributing things like morphine. It amounts to roughly 64 milligrams, a good dose of DMT. Really clean DMT, you only need about 10 milligrams. But back then, this would have been a crude production, and I imagine 60 milligrams would have been just right to get what we would call a breakthrough experience. He says, the acacia which has been given to you at the degree of master of ordinary masonry is nothing but that precious matter. And Hiram's assassination is the loss of the liquid which you have just received. So he's saying that it's the blood of Hiram that is being drunk. There are modern alchemical traditions that do this same kind of tech with acacia. They call it the blood of Christ. Another one I know of calls it the blood of Osiris, but it's the same concept. Now, after Cagliostro, just like Kelly, he was arrested. Cagliostro was arrested by the Inquisition. And in his possession was this document, La Tres Saint Trino Sophie, a brilliantly illuminated uh, piece of work. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, now, Manly P. Hall, just like the Krata Rapoa, he published this, and he took the liberty of attributing it to St. Germain. There's no evidence that this book was written by St. Germain. You'll see why. It literally describes what's going on in Cagliostro's ritual. But it was in Cagliostro's possession is a really important part. So this is one of the images we see in the beak of this bird is the same bipinnate compound leaf structure that we've seen in these acacias, these mimosoid trees. And this is a symbolic, this is how alchemy works. They give you like a rebus. It's a symbol that you have to decode. Uh, many of them don't have any writing with them. And if they do, it's very little. A good example is Mutus Liber, the mute book, which says nothing. It's just pictures. 
but in this is the key to the process of extracting the substance. In the same section where this appears, we see this crystal goblet with the red liqueur inside it. Now, next to this image is this text. It's a story about this man going through this trial, this trial and error, this journey, this rite of passage. And the man initiating him says, he says, he handed me in a crystal cup, a shining liqueur of saffron hue. Its taste was delicious and it emitted an exquisite aroma. I was about to hand the cup back to him after moistening my lips in the liquor. When the old man said, drink it all, it will be thy only nourishment during thy journeys. I obeyed and felt a divine fire course through all the fibers of my body. I was stronger, braver, even my intellectual powers seemed doubled. That sounds like a drug. Like the, the, he's describing the experience of it, of it flooding his nervous system. Now, the, the end bit about intellectual powers seem doubled. Evidence shows that psychedelics really do that. If you're familiar with, well, certain psychedelics, if you're familiar with James Fadiman's um, experiment where he found that microdoses of mescaline uh, allowed people, certain professionals with certain problems they'd been struggling with for several months to find a solution with it from just from that experience. He said, I think in the report, it says that every single one of them were able to not only solve the problems, but their solutions were eventually commercially accepted by their peers. This comes to the final part of his ritual of his initiation ritual. So they've been, they've, they've smoked, basically they've been fumigated with acacia. They've drank acacia. And now he sends the candidate into this little room he calls the tab a tabernacle. The tabernacle, of course, is from uh, the Moses episode when, and like the Ark of the Covenant, was constructed out of acacia wood. He sends them in there, and they are they're going to have a vision of angels, just like with D and Kelly. These angels are supposed to tell them certain things, impart wisdom to them. In the ritual, it's acted out as though they did. And there's a series of questions and answers, just like a catechism and Catholicism that they share after they emerge. So they go in. This is a, a, an image from one of Kunrath's, Heinrich Kunrath's manuscripts showing virtually identical scene to what they experience in this tabernacle. And after they come out, this is the final tracing board they're shown. And it, we'll, we'll get a good description of it here. Question, what does the tracing board represent? Answer, a phoenix being consumed in the middle of a blazing pyre. That's what we saw, that bird, remember, over the fire with the acacia in his beak. A sword and the staff of mercury. Those are up here um, under the bird burning in a cross figure. Time with wings, a master mason elect of God, an upturned hourglass and the broken Sith of time. These are on the ground um, under their feet here. Question, what is the meaning of the phoenix? Answer, that a true mason may rise from the ashes, that he can renew himself, be rejuvenated at will like that bird, and that it is with this certificate that one can say, et renovabit 
renovabatur plumas meas, my feathers grow back, basically. Now, this language of rejuvenation, we're going we're gonna to wrap up this talk with that, but keep that in your mind, keep that fresh, rejuvenation, renewal. Question, what is signified by time and the master mason who is clipping his wings? Answer, that when a good mason succeeds in clipping the wings of time, his life no longer has a fixed term. They're talking about entering a timeless space where time stops or doesn't exist at all. Eternity. What is meant by the broken Sith? Answer, that for a man who is immortal, the measurement of time becomes pointless. Question, what were you taught in the interior of the temple? Answer, the most sublime knowledge. Question, of what does that consist? Answer, after I had received a portion of the power which God desired to grant to the Grand Koft, our founder, meaning Cagliostro, I was taught the means of regenerating degenerate man. This idea of re regeneration is absolutely central to what Cagliostro is trying to do. And in fact, after you became, you went through this ritual, there was another rite that opened up to you, this retreat that he only offered to his advanced adepti. And this image here is showing us the, the in pictorial form. But I'll tell you the letters MB here, if we're, if you were paying attention earlier, that shows up on one of those tracing boards we saw, um, one of those coffins. In this retreat, Cagliostro devises, he says, the candidate will shut themselves up in a house in the countryside. He will take a grain of materia prima. Again, we know that a grain is a unit of measurement, 60 to 64 milligrams. We know that the materia prima is the primal matter. That's acacia. They're not taking the, the DMT yet. They're just taking the acacia, probably symbol, as a symbolic gesture. On first waking, he will absorb his first grain of universal medicine. We know from his ritual, the universal medicine is this stone that's been abstracted, extracted and dissolved in this wine. He will repeat this the following days. So this is a regimen, uh, uh, several days. After an unconsciousness of three hours, then convulsions, perspirations, and considerable evacuations, he will change the bed linen. Now, ayahuasca, granted you don't make ayahuasca with acacia, but ayahuasca is known in many regions as la purga, meaning the purge. And it's because it causes this kind of purge. Most people tend to vomit, but it can just as well come out the other end. And I think that's what we're seeing here. The following day, he takes a second grain of universal medicine. A deep sleep will follow. The hair, teeth, the nails, and skin will blacken, fall off, and be renewed. The fortieth day, he will return home regenerated and perfectly recreated. So this is what he meant What when he asked, what did you learn here? 
and they say, well, I learned the mystery of regeneration. They learned about this ritual, this retreat. Now, this notion of the hair, teeth, nails, they're, fall they're falling off and coming back. This sounds like nothing to me so much as the motif of shamanic dismemberment, which is particularly common with DMT experiences. And it's an experience where one has the, uh, the vision of being sometimes chopped up and put back together, sometimes skinned. Uh, at times, organs will be removed, which is very common with uh, Australian um, Aborigines dreamtime traditions. They, they will open them up, take out the organs, and replace them with crystals. We see something similar in the Ojibwa Midawiwin society, where they put magical shells inside the body. But I think that's what we're seeing with this retreat for regeneration, is a motif, motif of shamanic dismemberment replete with an ayahuasca analog. Here's a good example from two different alchemical manuscripts. It shows both how they kind of cheated off each other. They Each manuscript was like a version of the last one, even though they could be separated by 100 years. But it also shows this motif of dismemberment. Now, he's kept the head in both cases, which is golden. This head is identical to Osiris's phallus that was lost in the water. Now, if you know anything about DMT texts, you, you produce a, a fluid, a menstruum, and you put the wood in it, just like Osiris was chopped up. Remember, the deity is in the tree, chopped up, and put in the water. But what? even when you filter out all that plant matter that's now spent, because it's it's generative power is in the menstruum that's the phallus that's lost in that menstruum and that's the head that he's holding here that he's saving the rest he doesn't need he's in in masonry it's the same symbol as removing all of the superfluous material from that rough ashlar to make it a perfect ashlar the best explanation of shamanic dismemberment that i've ever encountered is from a man named Jeremy Nadler and his book Temple of the Cosmos where he's describing the Osirian initiation. He says, in the process of initiation, the overall experience of unitary self-consciousness was broken down altogether in order to rebuild it more strongly. The important initiatory idea of dismemberment becomes comprehensible when it is seen as the only way of describing the experience of catastrophic psychic fragmentation. The mutilation of the body undergone by Osiris was the prototype of psychic fragmentation that must have been experienced by the initiate in a psychophysical way. This psychic fragmentation was precipitated as a prelude to the initiate's re-identifying with a new psychic center that transcended the distributed psyche. The healing of the limbs, the restoration of the members of the dismembered body, is a theme that runs through the sacred literature of ancient Egypt. It was the climax of the Osirian initiation, which involved the experience of dismemberment. This was the final rite of 
passage. And with that, we come to, this is the, the final portion of this talk. We mentioned Jacob Burma briefly earlier, who used, borrowed that same language from Zosimos about tincture. He would talk about tincturing the soul with morning redness. He had a group of followers that uh, eventually left Europe and came to North America, where they landed in Pennsylvania and created this community called the Afrata community that's still there to this day. And they're a very magically oriented, alchemically oriented group of Christians, theosophers to be specific. One man came to them. His name was Johann Regnier. He said, uh, look, I hear that you've got this ritual for uh, this retreat that you do. They had in their possession Cagliostro's retreat. And he says, I've heard about it. I want to do it. And they said, well, that's absolutely out of the question. That's only for people who have been doing this for a long time. It's very dangerous. Maybe if you stay for a while and you do well, you might get an opportunity. But right now it's out of the question. And he says, well, I was just trying to be nice. I already have the retreat, so I'm going to go do it anyway. S screw you guys. And he does just like Cagliostro says. He goes out in the woods. He clears him a little spot of land. He builds his, his little hut. And then he starts taking the universal medicine. This is his own report of what happened to him. If there was any question about whether or not we were talking about a drug, this right here will lay that to rest. He says, I subjected myself and my cabin to all the rules and requirements of the ritual, even more strictly than they had been communicated to me. This went on without my attaining anything of that which I saw until I at last lost my reason and became delirious. When I was completely mad and without reason, they took me from the hut, demolished it, and confined me in a cell, guarding me day and night. But as they could not accomplish anything, they removed me to a dark cell and beat and lashed me so that I might recover my reason. It was like shock therapy or something. All As all proved for naught, and I only became worse, they removed me to another place, then again to another, where I had more liberty, after which I became sane. However, not without many relapses, or flashbacks maybe. Although my reason had been entirely gone, everything remained in my memory, and I can readily recall all so long as nothing else crosses my mind. Then I recovered and came gradually to my sound senses, but whenever my will was opposed, the turba and confusion appeared again. So, this was an unsuccessful attempt at Cagliostro's retreat, um, and the symptoms are consistent with what we know from what we would call a bad trip, somebody that's not prepared for what they're, they're undergoing. But this is, this is alchemy. This is what alchemy looks like since its inception was this tradition of producing this, this mystical substance from a very real physical tree. And that's hence the lab. You, you have to have a laboratory. They're preparing something. They're preparing a drug. And once it's used, we get 
that's where we get this trope of transmuting base metals into gold. It doesn't do that, but it transmutes baseline consciousness into illuminated consciousness, visionary consciousness. So that's uh, that's the extent of, of this talk today, and um, I, I hope you enjoyed it. Well, <laughs> well, you've you've presented a lot of interesting information here. There's a lot to digest. Yeah, it is a lot to digest. It's, and I'm going to have to digest it. I think, I think I saw uh, much of it at the Broughton conference, but mm -hmm. it's much better to be here and pay attention to it, and I can hear you better and. And just uh, just focus on it without any distractions. Uh, yeah, I, I think this will be very uh, very interesting for people. Uh, I have a couple of uh, maybe naive questions. Sure. Uh, from the standpoint of chemistry and pharmacology, uh, DMT, as you know, is not orally active. Usually, you have to have a a potentiator like a monoamine oxidase inhibitor to make it orally active. And it seems that in some cases, in many of the instances that you talk about, it's 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 consumed as a liquid. Uh, in other cases it's it is there it, there is references to fumigating it, you know, which does make sense. Do you think that this liquid well, a couple of questions. Might the liquid have contained an MAO inhibitor, like a beta-carboline, that we just don't know what that was? Or in other cases, might the liquid have been insufflated? Uh, could it have been taken through the nostril? I hadn't considered that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we do have a very... So we fast-forward to the occult revival, the 19th century occult revival. And there's a man <laughs> named Kenneth R.H. McKenzie. He's a student of a man named Frederick Hockley, who teaches how to do what Dee did, how to stare into crystals and talk to angels. He actually wrote a book called Crystallomancy, is what he calls it. McKenzie was his student, along with a man named Captain F.G. Irwin and Irwin's son, Herbert Irwin. Herbert was a virgin. He was a child. He's 15. And in their system, they believed the scryer needs to be a virgin, the person seeing the angels. So they had, they had Herbert doing this scrying for them. Well, McKenzie, he is trying to write the very first Masonic Encyclopedia. It was eventually published as the Royal Masonic Cyclopedia. In it, he wants to have an entry for every Masonic organization that exists. Well, one Masonic organization is the Rosicrucian Order. The very first Rosicrucian Order to surface after the initial publication of the Rosicrucian Manifestos is this German order called Der Ordens des Gold und Rosenkreuzer, created by a man named Hermann Fichtold. Another man broke away from this order and created something called the Fratres Lucius, a spinoff. Mackenzie wanted an entry for the Fratres Lucius. He didn't have one for his book. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know anybody who was a member. <laughs> so what they did was they got 
Herbert high as a kite. And, and we know that they were getting him high as a kite is, and, and because he eventually overdosed on laudanum, trying to take laudanum to use the crystal. But they get him high as a kite to, in order to contact Cagliostro because they believe Cagliostro, if anybody knows, he'll know. In the records, it says that they're successful. They make contact with Cagliostro and they tell him, we need to know about the fractures Lucius. What can you tell us? He says, well, there, there's nothing to tell you. You don't have the pharmacopoeia. And they, they say, what do you mean? He says, well, you can't do anything until you get the herb root. And this isn't a transmission from a, from a, a seance kind of like thing. So they have this herb root. And they say, well, what is herb root? And he tells them, he says, well, it's a, it's a plant you need to get. He says, if you take it, it'll cause euphoria. It'll cause you to sweat. It opens your pores. He says it's a cure for melancholy, but if you take too much, it's a poison that'll kill you. Basically describing Paganum hormala. Now, rue, we call Paganum hormala Syrian rue. Right. True rue is ruta graviolens, and it used to be added by Romans to wine uh, to increase the bouquet. Um, and it was used at one point during the Catholic Church for benedictions. But Syrian rue is unrelated. However, they didn't know this. If we go back and look at Pliny the Elder's natural history, he in, in his entry under rue, he says there are two kinds. There's the rue, common rue we're aware of, and then there's savage rue or wild rue. He says it gives a description for it, and it's a, virtually identical to the description Cagliostro gives for herb rue. Well, their teacher, remember, they learned this scrying thing from from frederick hockley and they tell him all about it and a letter from hockley survives where he says look i need the recipe for the herb rue i'm prepared to try it i've asked you in the past letters and you haven't told it to me what is the recipe which is significant too because he's not saying what's what's the herb they know it's herb rue but he wants the recipe for it more than one thing in it so there's that strange reference it, I mean, for all we know, they already knew about the necessity of an MAOI and knew that this was one and just needed to put it in Cagliostro's mouth to give them some authority. That's very possible. Right. But the other possibility is that is, is just impossible to accept. And yet here it is, this reference to Herb Rue. Right. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with Benny Shannon's speculative hypothesis, biblical entheogens, where he says, you know, these plants grew in such close proximity, they could have been and probably were combined. Mm -hmm. That aside, which I, and I think there's a lot to his argument, we now know that there are a number of acacias that, just like you mentioned beta-carbolines, they're possessed of flavon flavonoids that act as beta-carbolines and are orally active without the need of an MAOI. Good point. And some of these tryptaminergic acacias also contain beta carbolates because right. beta carbolates are in the same biosynthetic pathway. So there are species that have both tryptamines and beta carbolates. Now, the question is whether the species that were used to prepare these acacia elixirs were that species, but it's mm -hmm. entirely possible. So that could be a one-pot 
separate, uh, you know, preparation in, in a sense with the beta carboline. Uh, we managed to get some some um, seeds for the acacia albida, and we're growing it in a greenhouse. We're going to test each of the parts, the aerial parts, the roots, and see if it's one of these plants. Now, when I was in Australia, I was shown two different ones that they claim they can just one of them they can just use the phyllodes. Uh, phyllodes are they're like leaves, but they have multiple veins running through them instead of one through the middle. And there's something that a, that a tree will produce if it's in a in a region that doesn't get enough water. Right. Some of these phyllodinous acacias, yeah, and and you can get the uh, you can get a differential distribution of the different alkaloids in different parts, like the bark, the root, the mm -hmm. the phyllodes, and so on. So there are. You're right. There. Are, are a number of acacias that might contain beta carbolines, uh, you know, along with the tryptamines, and there may be data on that. I mean, uh, right. you know, uh, Snu might know; it might be in the literature. You know, he'd be a good one to ask. I think if anybody knows, he would know. Yeah, um, but then there's been all this taxonomic revision and so on. So, mm -hmm. so that that is a niggly question, but I I think that's another you know, fascinating aspect of this. And, and there's uh, another possibility. What's that? That, um, and this was presented to me by an alchemist named, uh, Eric Laporte, who owns a pharmaceutical company in India, but one of the most accomplished modern day alchemists I've ever encountered. He, he contacted me and he said, I've, I have made this elixir the, exactly the way they've described it, and it's active without the need of an MAOI. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, how? What are you doing to, to make it that way? And he says, well, I'm just making it so potent that it overwhelms the monoamine oxidase in the gut and gets past it. So that's another possibility, but taking so much that you occupy all the MAO in your stomach. Right. That is a possibility, and another possibility is, uh, and I don't think this has actually been uh, been verified, but it is possible. Some of these acacias contain not only DMT but 5-methoxy DMT, right? And bufonin 5-methoxy DMT. Those anadenanthers. It, it's ten times it's uh, more active than DMT on a bi-weight basis. I think it can be orally active uh, by itself, potentially. Mm. I mean, the work that I did as a graduate student on these varola preparations, the, the ukuhe, these, you know, uh, varola is uh, normally taken as a snuff, you know, and the sap is powdered, dried down powdered, taken as a snuff. But the Witoto and a couple other tribes, which I did my thesis on, make an orally active preparation about on that. And uh, out of that, that sap, essentially, mm. very high in DMT and 5-methoxy and other tryptamines. But those are the two main ones. And the, I remember that's why you went to La Chirera, right? Was looking for Okuda. Originally to get that thing, right? Exactly. And the hypothesis, but when I got back there 10 years later as a graduate student, my hypothesis, sort of my whole thesis, was a comparison of the chemistry pharmacology of ayahuasca, which is was then better elucidated. So we knew it was DMT, we knew it was 
beta-carbolines from Banisteriopsis. My naive question was, and the expectation was, that, uh, well, these Varola uh, preparations would be the same thing. They were orally active, and there'd probably be beta-carbolines in there or some kind of MAO activity, inactivator, inhibitor. Mm -hmm. And to my surprise, there weren't any beta-carbolines in the ferrolas I looked at. There were traces, not enough to be significant pharmacologically. But then I ran these extracts through MAO inhibition assays, and they were pretty good inhibitors of MAO. And so then I concluded that basically what's going on is exactly what... Uh, what you proposed, that the tryptamines were so high in these preparations that they, that, you know, they're uh, DMT and 5-methoxy, they're both substrates for MAO, right? So they mm -hmm. actually synergize and reinforce each other and overwhelm the MAO, you know, in the gut. I think that's what... So, the, so it's proven. It does work. That's It does... I, well, I didn't know that. It's a man of one, Danny. That's the thing. Uh, the one, we, we got about uh, seven samples of this material from different shamans, different practitioners, and we bioassayed all of them. Most of uh, some were inactive, and they later turned out to be, that's because they had no alkaloids. We're, we were looking at a tradition where a lot of, information had been forgotten this was a dying this was a disappearing this was disappearing knowledge you know and right. the people we were working with it was sort of like well my grandfather or my daddy knew how to do this and yeah i'll give it a try right. but we got a couple of uh, samples from this one who really did seem to know what to do with it how to make it and i bioassayed that in the field, and uh, it was it was a lot like 5-methoxy DMT. You know, I said at the time, this is a lot like 5-methoxy DMT. Uh, I had little experience amazing. at that time. When I got it back to the lab and put it through the uh, GC mass spec, yep, one spike, 5-methoxy DMT, at a ridiculously high concentration. And that was the only one that was unambiguously active, you know, of all of these. Others, I mean, I was surprised how chemically variable these things are. Sometimes different species, sometimes the same species, different specimens had a rather different alkaloid profile. So mm. uh, the varolas, there's a lot left to uh, be understood there, but... I don't think it's out of the question to think that, you know, and, and you know, I have not taken 5-methoxy uh, orally, uh, you know, at a high dose, and I'm not likely to because I'm basically chicken. <laughs> I'm concerned about my heart. I don't blame you. But, but and we don't have Jonathan Ott around who would do it, you know, and he would, you know... Uh, but somebody needs to try that. They need to try 5-methoxy orally, escalate the dose, and see if there's a level at which by itself, uh, you know, you're 
that it's acting. I, I would not be surprised if... Uh, well, when I was growing up, my guinea pig was always my little brother. You know, he was the first one to try salvia. We'd, put, we'd give it to him, and if he did okay, we'd take it. <laughs> so yeah. Maybe I'll call him up and get him to try it. Right. When I was researching um, the book uh, uh, that'll come out soon on Native American shamanism, I ran into a few unexpected discoveries in addition to that acacia americana that shows up at the burial sites and the uh, botanical assemblages tobacco of course shows up and another yeah. plant called ilex vomitoria um yopon holly yeah and tobacco mm -hmm. will form beta carbolines and when you feel that's exactly what i was going to say yeah mm -hmm. so that that tobacco would work and there's a there's a fascinating Freemason and this herbalist named Sibley, Ebenezer Sibley. If you get a chance, look up his herbal that he published. He dedicates it to the Freemasons. There are only a couple of pictures in there, a few pictures. The pictures that all of the ones that are drugs are on the same page. On the same page, he has coffee, tobacco, nutmeg, in mimosa and he puts them all together with no explanation of why that was the first time i suspected maybe maybe coffee or tobacco could work this way now it's not coffee but that ilex vomitoria is, is the only native north america excuse me the only north american source of caffeine that's related to uh yerba mate of south america right right, right. And, and it works as an maoi so there there are lots of things that that uh could have been done but cagliostro mentions none of them we we only get the mention of rue yeah from his mouth in a crystal ball you know so i think i'm i'm personally i lean towards the possibility that they're either working with a species that has its own flavonoid beta carboline yeah oh, flavonoids are another overwhelming mm -hmm. that hasn't been looked at so there's <laughs> There's lots of lots of things for chemists to to sort through here. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I mean, absolutely. Uh, this this is this is it. I think you've uncovered. I think you've uncovered the actual chemical uh, origins of alchemy. And yes, there are. It wasn't just speculation. It was not all symbolism. These people were mucking around with plants, and they were That's right. And, uh, yeah, this has been fantastic, Danny. I, well, thank I you. appreciate you coming and talking about this. We have to follow up with your, uh, with your presentation on the North American shamanism, which I know is just absolutely equally deep, deep, you know, and, uh, yeah. Thank I've you. shared some of it with you. You'll, you'll, you, I'd love to come back and tell you about it when it's time. Absolutely. You've got a book in progress with that. Uh, yes, yeah, it's already been picked up by Inner Traditions. Uh, I don't have a publication date, but uh, but it's gonna okay. it's gonna be on the shelves very soon. Well, keep us posted. We will uh, trumpet it from the rooftops, and and this one too. We'll get this out to our social media. You're gonna be famous. You're gonna be famous. Er, morphing well, but uh, I appreciate. I that. really appreciate. Uh, you're talking about this and you're clearly your scholarship is uh you know is deep you've read deep in into this and it shows you. 
and thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dennis. It's been a blast. Thank you. Yeah, uh, me too. I'll let you spend the rest of the evening and, and unwind. <laughs> I'll, okay. All right. All right, buddy. I'll, I'll be in touch. Now. Thank you for listening to Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. Find us online at mckenna.academy.